We're in a little series on the Holy Spirit with a focus on um, the um, treatise on the Holy Spirit. Wrong word. Uh, Jesus didn't really give treatises, but a long section on the Holy Spirit toward the end of the Gospel of John where that part where Jesus uh, uh, gives a new title to the Spirit that hadn't been used before, the Greek word paraclete, which means advocate for the defense. It's the opposite of Satan, which simply means uh, accusation, so that voice of accusation in our heads that we're so familiar with is named with this spiritual term, hasatan in the Hebrew. Uh, today, we're going to uh, find the groundwork for this understanding actually in the Hebrew scriptures. We're looking at the 23rd Psalm, as you may have guessed. You've got the 23rd Psalm there in front of you. If you got it on the way in, if you need a copy, I didn't get it, maybe maybe raise your hand and uh, we'll, we'll get you one. Uh, looks like you're all covered. Okay. Um, so earlier in, in John, uh, John's gospel, in the run-up to this uh, portion that we've been studying in this series, John chapter 10, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd. Um, I, I, I like the dialed-down expectations of being considered a sheep in relation to God. It's like, you know, I think I could, maybe I could do the sheep thing. Let's, you know, uh, George Bush was the president with, uh, you know, setting the low expectations so that you could meet them kind of strategy. And I think we all need that with God. And, and uh, this idea of God being our shepherd, we being sheep, does that for us. Uh, Jesus, throughout his ministry, um, had a focus on what he called the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he said, I was sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is actually kind of a technical term. It referred to a particular population in Israel, a large population in Israel that we would think of like as the, the, like maybe the common country folk. Um, they were also known uh, by the term the people of the land. And they were characterized by the fact that they couldn't keep the law of, uh, of Israel. So the Pharisees, the project of the Pharisees was take, to take the Levitical laws, all the laws that were prescribed for the priests and the temple and all those ritual laws, and then kind of democratize them, popularize them, make them available to all the people. And the thought was if, if all the people would follow the law, then we would, you know, get our act together. And maybe, you know, God would help us get rid of these Roman occupation forces. This was a, like a... This was a like an existential dilemma for Israel from a religious point of view. They were God's chosen people. They had been in exile in Babylon. They had returned from exile. They were in the land, the land of promise. But still Rome was in charge. And like, what's up with that? And so the Pharisees and others said, if we can get everybody following the Torah, um, and kind of at this higher level, then... God would surely be able to finally bless us and, and empower us to kick the Romans. So there was a lot at stake. And the people of the land, you know, naturally the leaders, are concerned about being in a situation where the nation's not where it's supposed to be in a fundamental way. And normally leaders are blamed for those kind of situations. So the leaders didn't want to be blamed. So they blamed the people of the land, this kind of large group of common people who, who literally didn't have the means, um, didn't have the time, didn't have the resources to follow the prescriptions of Torah. And it was thought that they were, in a sense, polluting the nation. Jesus came for them. Those were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Um, and this idea of blaming a group of people when things go bad, like, hello, I don't have to you know, remind you, Jerry Falwell after 9-11, all that kind of stuff. It's just the old, old as the hills. If Jesus saw himself as shepherd to the people that no other leaders would claim, it totally makes sense that he would refer to the spirit that he was sending as the paraclete, right? As the defender of the accused because these were the people who were, in a sense, living their life under this cloud of accusation all the time. They were the reason God wasn't blessing Israel to um, get, empower them to get rid of the Roman occupation forces. Jesus said in this section that we've been studying in John, I will not leave you orphans. And like without him as a leader, they literally would have been orphans. There were no other leaders that were, were claiming to be the shepherd for the lost sheep of Israel. But I will send you another advocate, like I've been your advocate. I will send you another advocate to defend you against accusation who will be with you always. So what Jesus is doing in John's gospel here is he's inhabiting the tradition of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. You have it on your sheet there. Um, I'm just going to, uh, during this time, review each of those little sections as like a vivid scene and comment on them. And I want you to pay attention to which scene most appeals to you. Which of those scenes like speaks to you, resonates with you, because at the end, during our time of quiet reflection, I'm going to invite you to uh, focus on that particular uh, particular section. You know, I just want to honor my father that the Psalm 23, I've probably mentioned this um, more than once, but Psalm 23 is a really important psalm to my dad. Um, he suffered uh, serious PTSD in World War II. It was totally un undiagnosed. They didn't know anything about it. But it, 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 he grew up Episcopalian in Detroit. And, you know, like most young men, he stopped going to church and he wasn't very observant. And he was really young in World War II. I think he was 19 when this happened. It was, a, it was a November 11, 1944, the, the biggest shelling to date in the war. And he was right in the middle of it in Patton's Third, third Army. And he's running across the field and the mortar fire is going left and right. And he's crossing this little stream on a little boarded kind of bridge. And just, he just started shouting Psalm 23 that apparently he knew from, from a kid. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside, you know. Uh, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know, he just yelled out word for word, Psalm 23, about two minutes before he landed at the base of a tree and a mortar shell hit him, killed a guy on his left and his right and gave him a kind of a war-ending injury in the back of his, uh, of his knee. At the end of my dad's life, and he, you know, he struggled with life, and the hospice nurses tell, you, tell us that, you know, the, the way a person lives is often the way they die, and um, he had prostate cancer, and it had metastasized, and he was at home, uh, in my home, my, my sister Nancy was keeping watch the day, the period that he actually died, and he it was really, he was struggling, he was, he was not really coherent, he was kind of out of it, it was really distressing for my sister to be with him at bedside, so she went out, gave herself a break, went out into the living room, opened like the Bible, and looked to Psalm 23, and just like read Psalm 23 to calm herself down, and when she came back to be with my dad, he was like calm and coherent, and he just looked at her, and he was like comforting her. He said, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. 
He was reassuring her that he was going to be okay, she was going to be okay. So like Psalm 23 is, uh, is my, my uh, dad's psalm. I'm using the translation uh, by the foremost uh, scholar of Hebrew, Robert Alter. Um, after the King James Version came out, uh, no one could fix any of the translation problems in the English versions of Psalm 23 because the language of the King James was so beloved and Psalm 23 was the most beloved part of all of Scripture that even though the scholarship changed and they realized there were some kind of faulty translations, you couldn't really touch Psalm 23. Uh, but Robert Alter, being a Hebrew scholar and not being beholden to the, you know, the Christian tradition, um, went ahead and did it and it's awesome. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows he makes me lie down, by quiet waters guides me. Robert Alter says that the Hebrew word for makes me lie down is actually a specialized word for making animals lie down. Like there's a different, different word in Hebrew for how you cause an animal to, you could imagine it is kind of a trick to getting animals to lie down, right? Like your dog, and put them, your dog in the car, how do you get the dog to lie down? How do you get a cat to lie down? I, there's probably ways. That, uh, we have one farmer in the church, Mark Metz. I, he's uh, out of Toledo, and I, uh, you know, Facebook uh, messaged him, and how do you get a cow to lie down? I was trying to picture that. He, said, he just was like, pray, LOL. You can't. You just, you just make them calm and comfortable and eventually they will lie down. It turns out that sheep are just small enough that a farmer can actually make them lie down and I have no clue. I, was, I grew up in Detroit. How would I know that? Getting us to rest is like a big priority for this God. Actually getting us to rest is a big priority of this God. And of all the gods in that region at that time, it was only Yahweh who cared at all about getting uh, people to rest. He put that into the Ten Commands, the, the Sabbath day, taking one day out of seven just to rest. Good thing to know about this God. Next picture is my life he brings back. And this is where Alter's translation diverges from the King James, which is, what is it? He restores my soul. Um, my life he brings back. Alter says he restores my soul isn't really right because the word is nefesh and it means uh, life breath. So it has more to do with like our physical life than what we think of as like our spiritual side or our inner life. He, he, it, the psalmist means brings our life back from the brink of death. Like literally brings us back from the brink of death. If you've ever been on the brink of death, you know that feeling when like, oh, it, the crisis passed. Uh, I'm alive. Um, and my, my wife, Julia, was um, uh, assaulted as a college student and thought she was going to die. And as she was, I was getting to know her, she was telling me this story. And she talked just strangely about that weird feeling almost of elation when the assault had been, it, it was all over and she was still alive. And she had this momentary like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm alive. And you realize like what an amazing gift it is just to be alive. And it's only when you've kind of come so close to the brink of death that you realize like, oh, I just have, I have to remember this. When I wake up in the morning, I'm alive. What a gift. I don't have to be alive. Thank you. 
He leads me on pathways of justice for his namesake. Again, this is another divergence in Alter's translation. Most English translations have, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Um, but that doesn't really capture the Hebrew word here. Um, uh, especially since we have this pietistic understanding of righteousness, we're the devout ones, we're like the morally pure ones or whatever, that's what the English word conveys in our setting, paths of righteousness, um, but it's the pathways of justice. And, and in the Hebrew, uh, justice and righteousness are, are the same word. And what justice means most of the time in the Hebrew Bible is justice in the sense of making things right for the poor and the vulnerable, for, for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens in particular, the people who tend to get uh, the raw deal of the power structures of the time. That's what justice is about. And that's a different understanding of justice than our Western tradition of justice, which is we've got these abstract laws, and justice is when you apply the laws to everybody equally, and it's just like, what's the law? What's the situation? How does it apply? That's what justice is in our understanding. In the Hebrew understanding, it's much more personal, and it's focused on the poor, the widow, the orphan, and making things right for these people when they are getting the short end of the stick. That was like the concern of the judges in Israel when the concept of justice was floated. So there's a dual image in the opening scene of Psalm 23. There's like the relaxation app, you know, the he makes me lie down, he leads me beside quiet waters, but that's paired with he leads me in pathways of justice with this understanding of what justice is. So uh, John over here works, for, um, works with cab drivers. And one of his cabs was in a minor fender bender. And it turns out that um, in the municipality, which I won't mention, um, uh, in this municipality, the cars were towed. Like you, any little fender bender, your car gets towed. And it gets, uh, in this case, it got uh, towed a very short distance, I think like half a mile, 800 yards, whatever, to the you know, impounding lot that's run by the company, the towing company that has the contract with the municipality. John, you know, finds out about this. He's responsible for this car. He calls uh, the next day after he learns, you know, what's happened. And it turns out he's got to pay $675 to get the car that was in a minor fender bender towed a half mile out of the impounding lot. He has to pay this company that has the contract with the municipality. And he says, well, what about the other car? That was $800 to get that out of the lot. And John's like, well, I'm in business. I, you know, I have the funds. I can, I can pay it. I'll pay it. I, you know, what can I do? I want the, I want the cab back. But you're like, you know, what if that other car is like owned by, say, a single mom? And so he asked some questions of the, of the person on the other phone who's, you know, telling him how much it's going to cost. And well, yeah, well, that the other person, uh, if they don't have the money, they better get the money because uh, we charge thirty dollars a day for storage. So that would mean like. If you do the math, if you can't get the $800 for a month, then you owe $1,600 to get your car that has been towed a half mile. And it turns out, by law, the towing company can auction your car if you don't pick it up in a period of time to get their money. And get this, 
if the money is not enough to recoup their expenses, they can sue you for the rest of it. That's bad. That is so bad. That's so wrong. Like I said, like John realized, I, I can absorb the cost of my business, but this would like throw a single mom who's, you know, working at CVS or something and has two kids, throw them into abject poverty. Now, Writing a wrong like that, that kind of has a pathway and it's structured into the way things have always been, that's not easy. We would need help from, from God, a God of justice, to do that sort of thing. So, you know, John complained to the owner of the towing company. Hello, he got nowhere. Um, he called the Ann Arbor News. They weren't interested. It was in a different municipality. Called the local paper of this municipality. Uh, they're going out of business soon. They weren't interested in investigative journalism, apparently. Um, so John <laughs> gets on the docket of the city council, and he makes a presentation. And he, gets, he said he got support from two of the council members, the two African-American members of the council, you know, kind of appreciated the fact that, you know, African-Americans are disproportionately affected by this kind of nonsense. Um, John said he sat down after the presentation and a city official nonchalantly said to him, oh yeah, these guys, these guys are all crooks. <laughs> John talked to me about it and said, call Steve Gray. Steve Gray supervises law students at the University of Michigan. They always need projects. Get Steve Gray to get some of these students on this law project and let's do something about this. So, Steve... You could talk to John afterwards. Did a, did a whole, whole sermon to set that up. No way Steve can wiggle off the hook this time. You, it, you, know, you live in a municipality near Ann Arbor. Talk to John. Maybe you can get on the bandwagon here. and Maybe we shouldn't put this part online in case the owner of the company is watching. But Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm for you are with me. So this is like the Glenn Wilson part of the psalm. Uh, prepare yourself for a brief summary of a New York Times science section article on how the human brain works. The latest research people. So lots of animals, mammals, birds are on constant alert. You know, have you ever seen a bird at your bird feeder? They're the, the poor bird. They're like they can't enjoy the, the sesame seeds or whatever. They're, they're just like constantly, like, they're in a constant state of alert. It's like, thank God I'm not a bird. That's just miserable. But they're like focused on present threat, you know, boom, boom, boom. What's, what's right in front of them? We human beings have taken that like to the next level. The human brain evolved so that we take it a step further. We actually can spend time imagining possible threat scenarios and kind of replaying them in our minds so we can practice kind of dealing with them. It's kind of like the Pentagon runs war games. Like we're doing that all the time with our brain. Researchers have determined that human beings don't think mostly about the past or the present, but think mostly about the future. Like if you could just tabulate what your thoughts are about, mostly it's about the future. And a big percentage of your future thinking are running these threat scenarios out. Some of you are nodding, like that's what keeps you up at night, right? It turns out also that our brains are really good at anticipating threats but really bad 
at anticipating good things that could happen in the future. And even when our brains accurately predict a threat, we grossly under-anticipate factors that will help us if the threat materializes. Does this, this is an explanation for your inner life, isn't it? Um, so we go through seasons when bad things happen you know over famously over a two year period I broke my ankle uh, at Yosemite I got pneumonia my wife had a horrible fall uh, you know had to call the ambulance go to the ER come home with a wheelchair surgery later two months later she died suddenly that was bad Um, That was just at the time I was headed into the LGBT religious controversy, which slowly erupted. I lost my standing in my denomination. I had unexpected people turn against me. I lost the church that I founded. And that's just an outline of the lowlights. Now, at any one time, my brain had probably anticipated, like in a flash of doing one of those scenarios, most of those bad things happening, though not maybe compressed like that. But my brain was even worse at anticipating um, what might materialize alongside those threats actually being realized. Like, you know, going to church in my early grief stage, um, pretending I wasn't crying during, uh, during a song. I'm looking at Linda over here. <laughs> and I'm sitting with um, Lisa and Lisa. When Lisa, or, or was it Lisa? No, I think, I think it was Lisa, rubs my back and lets me know that like she's feeling it too and she does it kind of discreetly, just kind of rubs my back while I'm, while I'm singing the song and I'm, I'm crying but I'm pretending I'm not crying. She's just like, okay, gotcha. I know what you're, it's, it's going to be okay. It, 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 I was a teamster for a while and, and worked like in a job site and on break time, this is like back in the prehistoric times, there would be this like truck that would come with coffee and sandwiches and donuts. Anyone remember that? And it always had like this silver cor- kind of corrugated side of the truck that lifted up as a kind of roof and they'd set up and you're like, it was awesome when break time came and you, you know, the, the truck came. Lisa and Lisa were like my comfort truck. They would always just show up and the thing would go and there'd be like, it was just, I never could have anticipated that. I, I never could have anticipated you and like having this church come out all. I couldn't anticipate working with Emily. I love working with Emily, co-pastor. Cassie, Penny, Caroline, Diane. I thought for sure our children's ministry was going to suck because there's no way we could pull it together. And I thought our worship was going to suck. And it was like starting a new church and our worship is good and our children's ministry is good. And I did not anticipate that. That's before we knew that Cassie was going to lead the worship. Once I knew that, then I, you know. No, even then, I'm like, where are the, where are the musicians? Where are we going to get a bass player? I didn't know you played bass, you know. I couldn't, I, I, from a brain activity perspective, we're constantly walking in the veil of death's shadow. I mean, like, that's our existential reality. And, and notice this line doesn't say, I fear no harm because no harm will happen. It says, I fear no harm because you are with me. So after Julia's assault, she went through, as expected, like a long period, a long for her period of of depression. And as she was describing this to me, she said, it felt like I was at the bottom 
of a deep dark hole and I couldn't see light up at the top of the hole and I was just sitting there. And she said, but somewhere along the line I came to realize that God was in that hole with me. And, and she was like, she wanted me to understand that did not mean that she felt happy in the hole of depression. Or that it, like, it, it, it just meant she somehow she knew that God was sitting at the bottom of that hole with her. So, so all that reality is packed in this one line, though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm for you are with me. And this is like an important um, grammatical shift in the psalm because up to this point, God, the Lord, the shepherd is always in English majors, third person. And the Lord is my shepherd. He, he is a little bit of distance you know, but this time it shifts to English majors, second person. In the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm for you are with me. So now we're addressing God directly when we're praying that psalm. And that, that evokes God's personal presence. We're not talking about God, the Lord he, the Lord she, the Lord it. It's you for the first time and then every other reference to God is you it's direct personal engagement for the rest of the you 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 your rod and your staff you know you you that's repeated for your rod and your staff it is they that console me so shepherds have uh, two pieces of gear the rod and the staff this is like standard and the rod is a short stick uh, made of mostly of us, like a sapling. Uh, and it's for consoling, not whacking the sheep. That's why it says, your rod and your staff, they console me. Um, things like the shepherd would use that to part the long, you know, thick wool of the sheep to look for burrs and bugs and, you know, help, help the sheep in that way. Um, the shepherd can launch that rod if the sheep is like veering into like a dangerous spot. The shepherd can't get there in time. He'll throw that little, that little stick. Like if the you know, sheep's going off to the right and it's dangerous, he just shoots it a little bit to the right of the sheep. It whizzes past the sheep's right ear and the sheep veers left. Ain't that sweet? Um, shepherd can use that rod to like throw it against prey animals and chase, chase away the foxes or the wolves or I'm pretty right, I don't know this stuff the staff is taller than the, the shepherd with the crook at the end um, and only shepherds use, use staffs um, because they're designed for sheep so the, the ewes that's for you city folk that's the baby sheep remember um, they can wander from the exhausted mother after, um, after childbirth, but you'd probably call it something different than childbirth if he or she. Um, and if the shepherd goes and picks up the, the baby, the lamb, and takes it back to its mother for nursing, it's dangerous because the mother will then smell the human on the, on the sheep and think it's not a sheep and, and I'm, I, I'm not feeding no humans, you know, and, and reject the sheep. And so the shepherd uses the staff with that crook to get under the, the lamb, lift it up, and take it over to its mother. Is that sweet or what? I mean, that's awesome. That's the kind of stuff that the psalmist has in mind. You set a table before me in the face of my foes. 
You moisten my head with oil, my cup overflows. I love this part. Um, so there's so many depictions in the Hebrew Bible and throughout the history of the Jewish people where the Jewish people are surrounded by foes. This was just, this happened to them all the time. They're surrounded in that Egyptian ghetto called Goshen by the Egyptian overlords. They're surrounded by the Assyrian armies at one point. The Babylonians armies come and they surround Jerusalem. Later they're surrounded by the Roman armies. Uh, not so long ago they're herded into ghettos and they're surrounded um, by hostile forces in Germany and Poland and elsewhere. So Jesus was a Jew. He was a devout Jew. Um, Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew, right? Um, he worshipped in the temple. He attended synagogue. Uh, he kept kosher, probably. He observed the Sabbath. He had his own interpretation of what that meant, but he observed the Sabbath. Uh, so he was sensitive to scapegoating in all its forms because it was the experience of Israel. And he always stood with the scapegoating. Um, and not the mob. So when the stoning mob formed around that woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, he, Jesus, brilliant, he bends down to, on his knee. He's like the guy they're coming to, to write in the dirt. So he, he draws the attention of this like organizing mob. They want to stone her. They've got stones in their hands. It's an organizing scapegoating mob. He bends down, writes in the sand so that it draws the attention of the mob away from the woman onto him and then with some brilliant like uh, rhetoric, he gets them to drop their stones. So this is, this is just Jesus fulfilling Psalm 23. That's the shepherd of Psalm 23 who sets a table in the presence of our foes, in the plain sight of our foes. I love this. Alter says that the oil on the head, it shouldn't be translated, you anoint my head with oil. He translates it, you moisten my head with oil. Because he says the Hebrew word is a reference to putting olive oil in your hair. So as the shepherd, using a little product on your hair. So you look good in the presence of your foes. You know, like, I don't know if you noticed, but recently I just got, I went to the barber and I got the Anderson Cooper uh, cut. And, and they said, you're going to need to use a little product. It's like a new hip barber. I'd never, I've been to the old barber before. He never talked about products. So like, what do I get? And I, and I talked to my son, Jesse. He knows this stuff. He says, oh, a bedhead. Get it on Amazon. I get this stuff called bedhead. It's blue. It smells like coconut. It's like, this is a trip, you know? And I was like, ooh, I put this stuff in. It smells good. And I was like, dang, you know? I was looking a little poofy there, and I got it all. This is, this is totally working. This is, this is the image, not to be too, you know, um, flip about it, that is being used of the shepherd in the psalm. Because the foes want us to look bad. They're rooting against us. You know, when, when two people get married, usually the, the family is rooting for them, right? But in some cases, the family's not rooting for them. Uh, but they're actually, like, rooting against them. Hope, maybe hoping this marriage won't work. They might disapprove of the marriage because um, the person is marrying outside of their race. Or the person's marrying outside of their religion and that's considered a horrible thing. Or they're marrying inside their gender or whatever it is. But it's just a bad thing when your family's rooting against you, right? That just sucks. 
Um, we get anonymous emails through a2blue.org from people who are rooting against us. Uh, they want us to look bad. They want us to fail. It just sucks to have people rooting against you who like are hoping that you'll look bad. The shepherd is for us when we're in that position. You set a table before me in the presence, in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. God is rooting for us in the face of people rooting against us. God's setting a table for you. He's working product into your hair. He's filling your cup to overflowing in the face of the foes. So I'm, I'm picturing the house of cards. Frank Underwood, please stay with me on this. If you've seen House of Cards with Frank Underwood, they've got this little trick they do where Frank uh, cuts to the camera and he's, you know, he breaks out of the, whatever's happening and he's talking to you, the audience. So that I picture the shepherd filling our cup so much that it overflows and he kind of makes a show of it. Like, oh, so sorry, sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. I wanted you to have the fullest portion possible and I overdid it and then he makes one of those Frank Underwood cut to the camera to look at our foes and say I filled their cup too full eat your hearts out it's like this is this is some powerful imagery that the psalmist is using here let but goodness and mercy pursue me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days um, the psalmist is still working with the pursuit, the foes situation here. Goodness and mercy pursue me. You've had the um, being pursued by foes dream, right? Where you're running and running and you just, you just can't keep ahead of them and you're going, it's like you're running through molasses and you're being chased. That's like deep in the human psyche being pursued by foes. And notice... Um, Alter translates it, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. It's not eternity, the way we think of eternity, like at the heavenly kingdom. The, the Jews are very focused on life in this earth. It's, it's like, you know, praying for a long life is what this psalm is all about. But notice the goodness and the mercy don't await me in the future, like I'm heading toward goodness and mercy, like the heavenly kingdom kind of idea. But it's goodness and mercy pursue me. Again, that's his translation. Not follow me, but pursue me, chase me. He's evoking this foe image here. So, um, uh, anyone here of Nikita Khrushchev in this crowd? Okay, good. Yes, thank you. We're not frosty enough for really. Nikita Khrushchev was the, you know, the, uh, when the Soviet Union was at its height, Nikita Khrushchev was the premier, and famously, he went to the United Nations, he took his shoe off during a, you know, tough time in the Cold War, and he banged his shoe on the table in the United Nations, and he said something, and it was mistranslated by the Russian translators. It came out as, we will bury you. And in the United States, we're like, oh, man, because he could bury us. It turns out he said, we will outlast you. There's a different, we will outlast you. That's all you need to do when you're dealing with foes is outlast them, right? Just run longer, run farther than your foes and wait for them to tire out and, and everything's going to be okay.
So if you think about all the things that are hounding us, all the things that are pursuing us, all the dangers of all the possible foes, real and now imagined that we're, you know, (laughs) spinning out our scenarios, the two dogs that will dog us to the very end after every other dog has given up dogging us will be named goodness and mercy. Somebody get two dogs and just name them goodness and mercy. I think would be awesome, you know. Goodness and mercy will be the ones at the end for us. So um, take out your uh, Psalm 23 here. And we're going to have our little time of quiet reflection. This is just two or three minutes we take. And it doesn't have to be silent. We all make little noises, babies and stuff. Um, But I'm going to read this over. And as I do, you can read it along with me. And then just let your mind settle on which of the scenes, which of the phrases... Um, or the lines really resonated with me that I want to just spend a little time with. And the way that you spend that little time with in a meditative sense is you just read it over a few times slowly, get, get the image in your mind, and then um, imagine yourself in that scene and whatever it is is happening with you or involves you so that's all it means to meditate on scripture is you just read the scripture over you you use the scripture to picture the scene with your imagination and then you place yourself in the scene as it involves you and so before we read this why don't just take a half minute or so to get comfortable in your place if you want to do this and i would just just suggest you focus on your breathing uh, just to calm down and center yourself for a half minute, then I'll, I'll read this. We can take care of that. open your eyes and take a look at that Psalm 23. I'll just read it slowly. You can look at it too. And look for that one line or verse that you want to focus on. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In grass meadows he makes me lie down. By quiet waters guides me. My life he brings back. He leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let but goodness and mercy pursue me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. Let's take a couple minutes with that now.
can uh, you can go back to that anytime you like. It'll be there for you. So that's good.